Recovery Elevator, episode 357. So that was a helpful tool for me was just to have that outward accountability. You know, there were a lot of tough times in this last year and a half that had I not had such wide accountability, I don't know if I would have made it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we have Jen. She's 34 years old. She's from Michigan and took her last drink on April 10th, 2020. All right, let's get rolling. We've got two great courses starting soon. First one is Restore. And listeners, registration is now open for our intensive dry January course, Restore. This is much more than a 30-day AF challenge or sobriety course. It represents you having the courage and openness to listen to the body and make a major change in your life. In this 14-session course, geared towards the newcomer, we'll cover different recovery paths. Is AA right for you? How to build community, techniques for calming the mind, spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, and the best part is you won't be alone. Join fellow course attendees on Zoom for 14 sessions. Classes are both lecture and small group discussions. Homework and resources are emailed after each class. Course starts Saturday, January 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern, and course days are Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And then let's talk about our brand new alcohol-free ukulele course starting Saturday, February 5th at noon Eastern. This course runs on Saturdays for eight weeks in February and March. When we subtract alcohol, it's important we then add something healthy, perhaps a new hobby. In this course, we'll cover how to ditch the booze, why music and sound vibrations help us find balance in our lives, and of course, you're going to learn how to play the ukulele. Registration for this course opens January 7th, and no prior ukulele experience is necessary. Side note, you do need a ukulele, and there's info on the website of what type of ukulele to get and where to get one if you don't have one. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Righty-o, let's get started. If you're just joining us or are new to the Recovery Elevator podcast, the episodes of November and December are dedicated to giving you a game plan of sorts to making it through the holidays sober or alcohol-free. We're giving you three battle-tested tips each episode to give you strength, courage, and the know-how. I know you guys can do this. Listeners, let's cover parameters for success, and this is not black and white. For example, If you make it through all 60 days of November and December alcohol-free, then you win. Or, if you drink one time on day 43, you lose. It's not like that, not at all. Maybe you listen to the episodes in November and December, incorporate some of the strategies mentioned, and you log 26 alcohol-free days. That's a huge win in my book, especially if that's an improvement from the last holiday season. There's an unhealthy paradigm in the sobriety world that it's all a bust if we drink once, that we're a failure, we suck, and we have to start over from scratch. I do feel continuous sobriety is the ultimate goal, but getting there is never pretty and most likely is launched off a series of relapses or field research as we like to call it here at Recovery Elevator. Okay, and before we cover today's tips, let's recap from last week. Number one, play the tape forward. When the idea or poll to take a drink emerges, ask yourself what you think will really happen. 
most likely you've got a deep vault of experiences showing you it's not going to be just one like your mind is telling you. I firmly believe this is one of the only ways or one of the only strategies you can use to think yourself out of a drinking problem or at least that first drink. The second tip mentioned last week was treat yourself to a gift. This could be a massage, professional bass fishing equipment, or a gym membership. Number three, take three deep breaths into the lower lobes of the lungs. This is where the nerve endings for the parasympathetic nervous system are located. And when activated, it sends a message to the brain saying we can rest, relax, digest food, heal, and chill out. Okay, now time for today's tips. Number one, say no. Another word for this is boundaries, and here's an example. Hey Tim, would you mind swinging by the liquor store before coming over? Tim's response, no, I'm trying to quit drinking. Here's another example. Andrea, I know that you don't drink, so would you mind driving us around on New Year's Eve? Andrea's response, no, being around drunk people late at night is not my idea of fun, Plus, I'll probably dip out around 11.30 p.m., but thank you for including me. Andrea's second response could be, Yes, but only if you all pay me what an Uber driver would make, and I'll need a $200 cleaning deposit from each person because we both know there's a good chance someone's going to be barfing in my back seat. The idea for this tip came from one of my lowest moments on this journey. It was Christmas Eve and I was struggling to quit drinking. In fact, when the gas station near my house couldn't legally sell alcohol, it was about 12.30 a.m., I contemplated stealing wine from the gas station. Thank goodness I didn't do that. Anyways, the next morning, my brother picks me up to head to the airport where we'll be traveling to see our family in Colorado. Him and his girlfriend had the ideas traveling as elves, and since I had a Santa costume, well, I needed to be Santa. Every cell in my body was screaming, no, fuck that, it's a horrible idea. But since I'm a recovering people pleaser, as Trisha from Recovery Happy Hour would say, I said yes. I remember waiting at the baggage claim at the Denver International Airport, still smelling of booze and having kids taking photos with me. I kid you not, it was horrible. So the first tip today is saying no. It sounds easy, but it's not. That's where tip number two comes in. That would be practice saying no. There is a reason we practice or train before competitions or for performing tasks. Studies show that you can learn piano without actually touching a piano. In Dr. Joe Dispenza's book, Becoming Supernatural, he talks about a group who learned to play piano only by visualizing playing the piano. When they got in front of an actual piano, they could play. The reason for this is they began to develop the neural circuitry to do so in their mind first. Practice saying no to a drink. Practice saying no to a drink while looking at yourself in the mirror. Look at yourself in the eye. Deliver it with confidence. Construct a line that you're comfortable with and repeat it over and over until it's natural. Practice the cadence. Do you say it fast? Do you say it slow? Do you say it with authority? In 2009, my brother and a group of his friends came to stay at my house for a week. Well, let me rephrase that more accurately. They came and stayed at my parents' house, where I was staying, after getting my ass kicked by alcohol from owning a bar in Spain from 2005 to 2008. When they left, they presented me with a nice bottle of tequila as a gift. My response should have been this. Thank you, but I'm trying to quit drinking. 
But since I hadn't practiced, rehearsed, or role-played, there was no circuitry around declining that drink, and here was my response. Ah, great! When I initially saw the bottle, which was presented as a gift, all my nerves and cells in my body said, oh shit, this is bad. But since I hadn't practiced saying no, I accepted the gift. And I want to mention, my brother and his friends had no idea I was struggling with alcohol at this time, since I hadn't burned the ships yet. Had I been honest with myself and my brother, I would not have found myself in that situation. This was a major lapse in self-care, only to be revealed in hindsight, and I'm hoping this wisdom can help listeners. And the third tip today is, create your own mini pep talk. I got this idea from a listener who said that after hearing my mini pep talks, she wrote her own mini pep talk. I love it. Get a pen, get paper, and create a 100 to 200 word pep talk for you. Fold this piece of paper up and put it in your wallet, purse, handbag, or whatever. On the practice theme, read this pep talk to yourself before your inner world catches fire. Practice. Practice pulling it out and reading it to yourself. This strategy will have max effect when listening to music while looking at yourself in the mirror. In your pep talk, boost yourself up. Talk about how far you've come, why you're doing this, who you're doing this for, and what you'd like to accomplish. You ditching the booze or even just having that idea or having the goal puts you in the category of badass every single time. All right, now let's get into our mini pep talk for the episode. If you'd like to get just this part of the episode for free, that would be the talk and the music. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash meditations. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Sometimes our desire to quit drinking only lives in thought form. It's an idea that's been swirling around our heads, but has never been verbalized or said out loud, or any other ideas of the new you, a new way of life, a new way of acting or thinking. First off, let's not underestimate the power of thought. Every human idea, creation, or movement first began in the mind. This is where it must all start. This is where the idea of departing from alcohol must begin, in our thoughts, and they are powerful. So powerful, in fact, that it's our thoughts that create our very world. What you put out there is what you get back. There are laws and rules dedicated to this. The golden rule of treat others how you want to be treated is one of them. Like attracts like. So I want you to become extra vigilant of your thoughts. Any narratives or thoughts that aren't in line with your goals need to be discarded immediately and as if your life depends on it. Make this your number one priority. And I get it, it's hard. Some of those thoughts are nearly invisible since they've been there for so long. Some of these thought forms contain our very existence, our identity. How do you let go of that? Well, there are many steps to this. First, it's about deconstructing. Realizing that you are the sum of the story of your parents, your family, your community. What worked for them might not work for you. Then, it's recognizing the thoughts that aren't congruent with you and what you need in life. After that, it's using the thinking mind for creation. It's a fool's errand to use the thinking mind to solve a drinking problem, but you can use it to start visualizing your new life. So with this thought of quitting drinking, let's bring the thought into the world. Put all your energies into this thought form that you no longer drink. Repeat it with all your energy and awareness repeat it again and then 
say it out loud. I no longer drink. Because remember, what you put out there is what you get back. And before we hear from Odette and Jen, let's hear from Exact Nature. We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal, to help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com. Paul, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and Recovery Elevator. I'm really happy to introduce Jen to the show today. Jen, my friend, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. I'm glad we're finally doing this. We had this on the books for some time and it was off and it was on. So the day is finally here and I'm really happy that that we are recording your story. And Jen, let's get right to it. Let us know when the last time you had a drink was. Yeah. So my first day of this sobriety is April 10th, 2020. That's the latest date of my sobriety streak. I know you've had stops and starts, and I'm really excited that we can chat about that because I think it's something that's really important. It's also a part of my story, but I mean, April 10th, 2020, that means you got through all of the pandemic. So yes, Yes, I rocked it. (laughs) It was hard. (laughs) Oh, I'm proud of you. And let us know a little bit about yourself, Jen, because I do know you through social media, but some of Mm -hmm. our listeners are new to you and your voice. So can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living? How Mm -hmm. old you are? What do you do for fun? Just some about you. Okay, I am from West Michigan. I live about a mile in from Lake Michigan, which is just absolutely gorgeous if you haven't been there. I have two children and a loving husband. I'm 34 years old, and I can't remember the other question that you asked. I'm sorry. What do you like to do for fun? Oh, my gosh. As a mother of two, I feel like fun is like anything in between that. So I really love to hike when I get a chance. I love being out in nature. I love going to the beach, living so close to the beach. Um, I like to exercise and just spend time with the family. That's what I do for fun. Yeah. You know, being a mom, I was telling someone last week, it's at the center of everything, at least with kids that are younger. So I know, (laughs) I know what it's like. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And Jen, tell us a little bit more about you and your relationship with alcohol. So when did you start drinking? How did that progress? How did that relationship develop? And what got you to start questioning your relationship to alcohol and considering quitting drinking? Yeah, absolutely. So I think right out the gate, I knew that I liked it too much. From the moment that I took the first sip, I felt like this instant inner peace and thought almost immediately, where can I get more of this? And how can I do this all the time? The first time I ever got blackout drunk, I was 14 years old. So I started to experiment with alcohol from a really young age. And I actually kind of started drinking off of the bang, slowed down because I knew it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work out for me. I was getting into trouble and I was realizing how much of an impact it was making in my life from such a young age. 
And I remember stepping back and being like, whoa, maybe this isn't right. This isn't good for me. So by the time I was 18, I was just telling people, you know what? I don't drink, Um, (laughs) which is crazy because I was only 18 saying, I don't drink anymore, which is just to show how much it impacted my life. At around age 18, I went through some pretty traumatic experiences and I didn't really have anything to hold on to for coping mechanisms. And so the first opportunity that alcohol came into my life, I took it and I was off to the races with it. I became almost drinking to drinking every night or any night that I could get a hold of it being a minor. But I remember being 19 and drinking a fifth a night if I could get my hand on it you know, my hands on it. And I just, the wheels really came off really quickly. And then as I continued drinking and experimenting, I added in cocaine. So the next thing I knew I was drinking excessively doing cocaine and I was not even 21 yet. I actually looked for help and like, like sought out treatment, but I never ended up going to any treatment facilities. And so that was like, out the gate. That was my experience with alcohol. And I realized that it was impacting my social life. It was impacting getting a job. So I really had to scale it back. And so I decided that, well, maybe if I just drink beer and wine, I'll be okay. Um, And here's the parameters that I have to put around my drinking in order to make it socially acceptable. And I learned that from kind of a young age to compartmentalize and be like, well, as long as I don't you know, drink to the point where I'm too hungover to show up to work. I can still maintain a job, but I was still drinking every night and I was still getting drunk on the weekends whenever I could. And um, it was just really taking a lot on me. And this is, this is in my twenties, I kind of became that weekend warrior, really like to go out on the weekend as much as I can um, until I became a mother. I mean, Jen, thank you for sharing. I feel like I personally haven't interviewed a ton of people that right out of the gates, it sounds to me, or this was my interpretation that you, mm-hmm. you knew you had a problem pretty early on. And I'm looking at just knowing you in the last couple of years through our community, you know, you are 34, you're talking mm-hmm. about how this started to progress and the wheels fell off pretty early on, even before you were 21. So I'm thinking, man, we still have to get through the 20s. And this is <laughs> this is hard. So I guess I'm wondering like wheels were falling off, but what did your life outside of your drinking behavior look like? Was it evident to other people that the wheels were falling off or were you so functioning that it was almost just a very lonely progression where only you were aware of what you were doing? What was it like? I feel like we're, mm-hmm. your brain wasn't even fully developed when all of this no. happened. No, it was not. <laughs> no. And I, to be honest, no one, well, People probably confronted me. I definitely think that the parental figures in my life were confronting me on a regular basis, but I didn't want to listen to it. And I was able to kind of hide myself in the hardcore party crowd without much confrontation to keep it alive, to keep that going. That, That almost makes it harder, in my opinion, you know, because I feel like at that young age, that behavior, at least for me, I remember it wasn't necessarily with drinking, it was with my food stuff, but it's like such a call for help and then nobody's noticing. So then it's like this weird, like, can somebody help me? But I also don't want to say that I need help. It's just very 
lonely and hard. So what, how was your twenties? What, what happened? Cause it's a big chunk. Like I said, from, uh, from your last drink to where we're at in your story, that's, that's a whole more than a decade in between. So how was your twenties? I settled into the idea again, if I was able to put these boundaries around my drinking, like no drinking before five, don't drink liquor. Cause you get too drunk and start making horrible decisions. As long as I kept it within a certain parameter, I was able to keep it alive. So through my twenties, I had, you know, careers. I was a mom, I was married and I was able to be a functioning alcoholic. I didn't have to drink every night either. Uh, That didn't happen until I was later on into my twenties, early thirties. It was kind of like I was just stringing along with this addiction and trying to protect it as much as possible by keeping these safety boundaries and parameters around it. So that way no one would take it away from me because I knew if I, if legal issues came along or if I took it too far, then it was going to be taken away from me and I had to protect it at all costs. So I did a really good job at managing myself and making sure that I was functional. It still was impacting me on a regular basis. Uh, I just didn't want to see that part of it. Those things are there, but we don't want to see them. You know, As I got older into my 30s, something shifted and it was like the drinking I did in my teen years. It was, I was angry and I was drinking to numb and don't get me wrong. I was doing that pretty much the whole time, self-medicating, but it turned, it took like this really dark shift and something that I didn't share with you before was that when I was in my, or my late teen years, uh, I experienced uh, suicidal ideation and cutting. And I looked for any, any sense of relief from what I was experiencing at that time. And here I was in my thirties and I was surrounded by the people that love me in a lovely house. And I was dealing with the same emotions that I had back then. And I was like, where are these coming from? It was like, oh, you can put a bandaid on it, but if you don't deal with it, they're still going to bubble up. And I was in my thirties. I was suicidal, drinking every night, angry at my life. And I, it's kind of like what everyone says, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but I was also desperate to get out of this depression that kept coming back up. And I couldn't believe that I was back there again. And I was like, what is this? What is going on? And the common denominator in my life was that I had trauma. I didn't deal with it. And I was an alcoholic. And I knew at that time that I had to save myself, rescue myself and get some help. Um, and that was what, that's what started it is I, I finally asked, you know, I finally got the courage to ask for help from someone. And it was kind of like the, the jig is up. Like, I can't keep this going anymore. I can't keep protecting something that is continually hurting me and stunting my growth. And so I knew it was time to let go as, as hard as that was, because it was the only thing I knew for 15 plus years. That was the only coping mechanism that I had and it wasn't working anymore. So I had to desperately look for other coping mechanisms and really address some things that had gone on 
that I had just kind of pushed away and didn't want to deal with because I thought 10 plus years, that must be enough time to have gotten past it. But I hadn't really worked through any of it. You know, and that's where I feel like I'm so grateful that you had, I don't even know what word to use, the strength, the courage, the grit to to kind of get out of that loop. Because most of the times, you know, my heart like cringed when you said like, all this time has passed. And I started wondering, like, how did I end up feeling the same way as when I was 19? After mm-hmm. all this time, I feel like I've been there and it feels so defeating. And for me, I don't know about you, but it perpetuates that belief that like, no matter what, it's going to be this way. Like I'm going to be effed. And yeah, it's just because it feels it feels so similar, even though so much time has passed that you mm-hmm. either that f- continues to feed into the loop of like where this is how it's going to be no matter what. And to mm-hmm. get out of that, I feel like is so hard because at least for me, it like perpetuates this narrative of something that I already believe so much in my brain, even though it's bad for me, that it's really hard to get out. So (sighs) what did starting to ask for help and let go of the grip of your addiction look like for you? What were those early stages in your early 30s? Sure. Uh, That was brutal honesty with myself and trusting that if I asked for help, someone wouldn't call me dramatic and tell me that I'm fine. And, you know, I think as people that struggle with depression and anxiety and addiction, we probably make multiple attempts at that, right? So I have, over the course of my life, asked for help on several occasions, and I was just continually asking the wrong people, Mm. kind of like the same people And they kept giving me the wrong answer. And instead of being like, oh, I can see how much this hurts you. Let's, let's work on this. They were kind of like, oh, you're fine. They kind of, I was being overdramatic. And, and now we know as a society, I believe that we've gotten to a point where we don't know what everybody's thinking and we don't know what people are dealing with. And that's just so true to my story from the outside. I looked fine from the inside. It was crumbling and falling apart. And I just, had this very, I had a very things lined up for me that I was able to ask for help and I asked the right person. And then I was also able to seek help on my own because I was at that point where I knew I was done. And so I started picking up the phone and calling and looking for things that were going to help support me in this. Yeah. And I feel like realizing that we need to get unstuck and starting to advocate for yourself sometimes looks like what you're sharing of continuing to ask the wrong people, not because we don't know the answer already, but I feel like we're still kind of clinging. You know, I think the initial stages of the decision just to normalize this is like you make up your mind about getting sober. And then three hours later, you're like, oh, shit, why did I tell someone that I wanted to attempt sobriety like this, (laughs) like oscillating between dipping your toe in and then being like, oh no, I'm not ready. And going back and forth, back and forth. Like it is truly so normal and such a part of the process, but you just have to kind of keep playing tug of war for a little bit. And then Mm -hmm. hopefully it just clicks. And what made it start clicking for you? You know, where else were you asking for help? Did you start searching for other tools or what happened after? Yeah, absolutely. I, 15 years is a long time. (laughs) And along the way, I've, you know, you pick up these things that 
help you and you pick up these skills and you see resilience in yourself and how you got there. And so by the time I was 34, like I knew what I had to do. It was almost like I had this whole toolbox. I just never picked up the tools to use them. And so I took action. And I think that's the difference between all of the times, because I I didn't explain this early in my story, but I had had multiple attempts of sobriety from basically when I picked up a drink, right? Like I didn't, after I was drinking as a teenager, I decided to quit. And then when I got to be about 19, I sought help, like treatment. And as I got into my mid twenties, I think I quit again at 23 and again at 24, (laughs) like I was always trying to get out of this. I was trying to quit multiple times throughout my twenties. I just hadn't told anyone because I knew if I told somebody there would be that external accountability, like what you were saying before. And I wasn't ready to give it up because, you know, as much as I didn't want to drink, I absolutely wanted to keep it preserved. And like I was talking about earlier, preserving my coping skill, the only one I knew was what my goal was. I also, you know, it was, it was just a really hard thing for me to give up. But by the time I was ready to quit, I had had multiple attempts at sobriety. I had gone to AA. I had contacted therapists. I had reached out to other people who were sober, not anybody, you know, that would be necessarily around me, but there was a lot of sober curious activity going on, especially towards my late twenties. So when I get sober, I, this time, and to be honest, I, it would have been November, 2019, was one of the most significant dates for me. And it's a date that will always be in my heart because that is the date that I asked for help. And that's the date that I contacted a mental health organization and went to seek like a kind of like an outpatient treatment. And then I got on the books with a therapist and started working with a therapist every week for two years. And that's where the real change started to happen. Um, April 10th was the date after I had a slip. And that slip was just a huge turning point for me. It literally scared me to death. So after that point, um, that's my latest sobriety date. But another thing that really helped me, and I want to, you know, I want to say this because it's really important to me. It was, I joined Cafe RE, which is what Recovery Elevator offers as a sobriety community online. And I think I joined maybe the 11th of April and just having that extra layer of accountability, obviously, basically when something happens to me and I see myself sliding back or I have a slip, I say, okay, well, how can I reinforce this? Because truly sobriety is 100% what I want. And what, can, what steps can I take to achieve that goal? So with this, the slip that I had, I was like, okay, I wouldn't mind plugging in with the community. So I ended up joining Cafe RE, which has been tremendously helpful. And I continued on with therapy and whatnot. So, and, and now I don't think I mentioned earlier, I actually have a job as a recovery coach. Mm-hmm. So that was something we missed earlier in the introduction. So that is what I am on. That's my career path right now. And that also adds another layer to 
my story and another layer of accountability for me. A hundred percent, you know, and I do want to double click on what you shared about, you said it wasn't until you went to therapy that you really started to notice some strides. And I feel like it goes back to what we were sharing about that feeling of defeat when the same feelings arise after all that time, it is Mm -hmm. due to a lack of whatever you want to call it, like processing or haven't talked about it, haven't felt the feelings, you know, whatever it is. And I do feel like there's roles and different tools and the different tools take different roles. But I have found that some of the tools are super crucial and vital, like community, accountability, having friends, having people to lean on, having people that get you. But then also the importance of actually doing the thorough, messy, uncomfortable Mm -hmm. work of processing the trauma. Like sometimes you do need to either do it through a therapist or through another modality where it's not just the accountability piece, but there's also the processing piece. Like I found that recovery is so complex and sobriety is more than definitely not just about quitting drinking and stopping consuming alcohol, but so much more about identifying those wobbles and -hmm. just addressing them because that's where we're all so unique. You know, some people have more trauma to process. Some people, it's more of a habitual thing. Some people, you Mm -hmm. know, we're all so different. So I do feel like figuring out where you're stuck at and you shared it was that like same feeling, even though time had passed and seeing what actions you can take in order to diminish that or help process that out. That is such an active role that we have to take because nobody knows that Mm -mm. only you do. And, you know, I'm just really glad that that you did that for me. I've also found a ton of help and healing through therapy. And I think it's Mm -hmm. very important because I have wonderful friends, but I think that it's really hard for people that are close to us to like call us out on our blind spots and identify Mm -hmm. these things. You know, it's just going to a professional, which I think if we really want to, if we want people to take us seriously, the ones that are advocating for recovery, then seeking professional, professional help is part of what we need to be also advocating and speaking to, because it is Mm -hmm. for many of us, a disease that we can't just talk about over coffee. You know, we have to seek out that help. Yeah. I had a lot of things to unscramble. Mm-hmm. I felt like that I had this internal knot and I needed someone else to help me untangle that. And I couldn't keep putting that on. Like you say, I can talk to my friends, but that's a lot of weight and they don't know how to help me. And so I really had to help myself, but by seeking treatment through a therapist, I was doing that and I was alleviating bleeding all over, essentially bleeding all over my, my friends and family and being like, help, I don't know what to do. Well, they're not professionals either. So I was able to go and hire someone and kind of offload on them. And that's their job is to take that and they're trained for it. So I found that that was the best, best path for me. I know that that's not the best path for everyone. I talk about many different modalities of recovery and different ways and paths. We're all trying to just get to the different paths, the same mountain kind of deal. Yeah. hundred percent. And what other tools other than community and cafe and therapy, was there anything in like your day-to-day routine? I know having kids Mm -hmm. usually means being triggered and stressed, you know, what rituals (laughs) have you incorporated in your life as tools, Jen? Oh, I have so many tools. (laughs) Honestly, self-care, is my jam. I 
love self-care. I preach self-care. I think we should always take care of ourselves first so we can take care of others. And taking a daily inventory of how I'm feeling and uh, having open communication with my partner so that way I can communicate when I'm feeling frustrated so it doesn't bottle up and I just take it with me and, and then it blows up later. I also took the time to start an Instagram, which it's really more for me. Cause if you look at like chronologically, it started early in my sobriety and I used it as like a daily posting just to write things. Cause I love to write and that's how I like to express myself. And it helped me to kind of make these little public journal entries And then I found it helped other people. And that kind of made me feel like I was doing the service, you know? So that was a helpful tool for me was just to have that outward accountability. You know, there were a lot of tough times in this last year and a half that had I not had such wide accountability, I don't know if I would have made it. So for me, having a very wide reach um, was very helpful for me. Yeah, I really like your account. And I know that a ton of people benefit from your post. So whether you're writing to the masses or just keeping it as a journal, I think that just putting yourself out there is is awesome. I know you're a big inspiration when you're on there. And and the cool thing is you never know who you're going to reach. And the whole point of it is just self-accountability usually usually ends up having a really nice ripple effect. Yeah. So what what do you do if you have a strong craving, Jen, or if you have a very uncomfortable situation arise in your life where you just want to mm-hmm. run? Oh, I know those big emotions when they take over your body and you're just like, let me out. I, you know, <laughs> it's, it's bad. So I learned, my, I've learned to distance myself from if there's a particular situation that's triggering me, I I use distance as my friend. So if it's a situation where I got to leave, I'll leave or I'll have an exit strategy. Or if it's like a text on my phone that hit me emotionally and started to trigger me, I try to give myself time before I respond so I don't lash out causing more like chaos. I also have kind of a mental list of things that I go through if I'm having a really triggering day, because I know that they say, I know that they say a trigger lasts 20 minutes or a craving lasts 20 minutes, but I am telling you, I've had cravings that have lasted like a day and a half. So I will go through that list and just cycle and repeat, go for a walk, take a bath, call a friend, be truthful to my husband, you know, share this with the sobriety group online. I'll just go through that and then keep going through that until it goes away. It'll eventually go away. They, they always do. And the amount of time that I have under my belt right now, I've been through multiple cravings. And every time I go past one, that's evidence that I can do it. So I'm kind of building that, that mental stamina behind that. Like, oh, I've been through this. I can do this again. Yeah. Getting in those reps is important. And I also, I appreciate your candidness because I am with you, you know, and I'm someone guilty that has said like, oh, just write it out. It's going to go away in a few minutes. But I share your sentiment. And I feel like for me, I don't know if it's linked to my mental health, my depression and other stuff, but I feel like I almost go through chapters. Like I could have a week where like, yeah, 
it feel the cravings feel so real the whole week versus like, oh, it was this one off craving and then it went away. You know, I think <laughs> it has required this like self honesty of like, what does it look like for me? Because I also right. feel like when we don't fit in these boxes of like recovery or what recovery should look like, then that's just basically another out, you know, like I'm doing it wrong. I'm inadequate or whatever. And mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm getting very mindful of giving advice, even though I'm still hosting the show, but <laughs> I just feel like it's so different for everyone. And of course we have a lot of similarities, but it's so unique. And I just feel like I want to validate, like, if you say no, the craving lasts for five hours straight for me. It's like, <laughs> I actually believe you. Like, I don't think anybody oh, would yeah. want to make that <laughs> up, you know? So no, I, yeah, I I've totally read, I've, yeah, I've read in a few places really where it's been like, oh, it'll it'll last for a little while. And I'm like, I don't know. And that and it's so true. There's so many different things that play into that because the initial craving, you're right. It probably doesn't last a super long time and it's kind of like a wave. But when you're in this mindset and you're in this funk and you just yes. can't get out of it and you're just like, it, it kind of keeps leading you back to that craving. That's when it lasts for a long, longer. Yeah. What do they call yeah. it? You know, like when you've relapsed in your brain and I, I, yeah, they say that like you relapse in your thoughts first, which I agree. Oh, you do. But yep. I also <laughs> think that you can pull yourself back. Like I've definitely yeah. probably relapsed once or twice in my brain, but then it's yeah. like raining it back in, raining it back in. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of emotional work. I really you mentioned something that I want to also make a note of here because I'm working on this with my therapy, too, and it's creating this distance. I I'm doing this new therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, where instead of trying to change negative thoughts for positive ones, like, oh, I'm having a craving. Oh, don't worry. Just go for a run and it's going to go away. Like, I feel like I'm <laughs> yeah. very I've always been that more like bubbly, proactive recovery person. And my homework right now and my like task at hand is like, you don't have to change the feeling or the thought when it comes. You just have to diffuse it. It's one of the mm -hmm. skills of ACT therapy of like just create some distance. And that can be either physical distance or like just the way that I talk to myself. Like, oh, I noticed this is happening instead of like, why is this happening? Or, oh, no, this isn't happening. I'm pretending mm -hmm. like it's not happening. So <laughs> I just feel like that distance, that pause, we talk about mm -hmm. it a lot, you know, that space in between the trigger and the action, like it is definitely something that I think we all aim to master because not just for sobriety, but I think for a lot of our, you know, negative behavior of just like responding back or reacting mm -hmm. back, just getting truly in the habit of that distancing can be so beneficial. So I was glad to hear that's one of your tools. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I, if I react poorly, I get in my head, I'm kind of, I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I'm also recovering in that I used to be super mean to myself. Mm. And I kind of, it turns into this shame spiral and it kind of can snowball out of control. So the best thing is for me to stop it before it starts. And to keep that in mind is like, keep your distance, wait to respond. <laughs> it's just something that helps a lot. How is um, life in your family different and what like mm. ripple effect benefits have they been receiving from this sober version of you? Yes, it has been an all-inclusive experience. I'm very open about my sobriety. My kids are older and my kids are like, my son is 16 
and my daughter is 10 going on 11. So drugs and alcohol are going to start coming, are already coming up in my son's life and they're going to start coming up in my daughter's life. And so while I didn't share all of my experiences with them and the turmoil and the suffering or anything like that, I kept them very protected from that side of me. They do see the recovery side of me. Yep. So they, they've been experiencing this journey with me and watching me set my boundaries. Like I said, I keep, I keep things, you know, separately. They, I don't talk to my kids as if they're my therapists. I keep them protected from a lot of the things that they don't need to necessarily know, but they're aware kids are, they're sponges and they're picking up things all over. So when I was hungover, like they knew I was different or if I was drinking, which I tried not to, uh, when they were around, take it overboard, of course, but they could tell, they can tell when people are drinking and they, they know about alcohol and to be able to show them what a life in recovery looks like in a positive light is, is huge. (laughs) I'm tearing up like to show that for my kids, especially if they get into their own issues, I will be a beacon. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's just a lot of undoing old habits and traditions for my family. And to be able to be the frontier for that is super special for me. I I know, and we don't talk about it a ton, but I know that they appreciate me so much more being present. A hundred percent, you know, and you know, you are doing a lot of legwork for them. And that just really looks very unconventional because I think that with teenagers, what looks more conventional and is more acceptable is a lot of the times the parents continue to do the behaviors and then are asking teenagers to not do certain things and no judgment at all. I'm just saying, you know, kids do more of what we do versus what we tell them to do. And you're just by you being on the path instead of trying to control or bicker or tell them what's wrong or right, just by you doing you, I think is going to not make them exempt of their own challenges because that's Mm -hmm. something that I've had to work through too, as a mom, like they're going to hurt, but also Mm -hmm hopefully have some sort of model and something to fall back on that is just not perfect, but just an attempt at, you know, living in this integrity of living in recovery. And like, it may not look like not drinking for them, but it may look like, you know, it's just for me, the recovery piece and the accountability is like not having time for your excuses. I feel like a lot of the times we feed into our own excuses and it's so easy. And that's mm-hmm. hard. Like we all do that. So I feel like we're teaching them a lot of lessons of just like, yeah, get over your own bullshit and like get your, yeah. get your stuff together. You know, you, do you stay on your lane? A lot of these yeah. values that at least for me have taken so long to, to, to learn and to try to understand. So I'm, I'm hopeful too, like you, that whatever yeah. happens, whether they need to then pick up these tools later or not, but just to show them that you are, you know, working or your recovery, working towards something. So I'm sure they're mm-hmm. very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> mm. And I'm really happy to hear too, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times how your husband is someone you can share with and is supportive. So I know that that yep. partnership is something that, you know, some people don't have, or it, it takes time to get there to have that openness and that vulnerability. So I'm really glad to hear that he's part of your accountability as well. Absolutely. He is one of my, he's one of my biggest supporters. And I believe that I absolutely need that 
it's something that I, I really appreciate about him is that he fully supports my sobriety. And when I say, I think I need this for my sobriety, whether it's, we got to leave the party at this time, or I don't know if I'm going to be able to make that wedding. Do you mind going alone? I'm so sorry. He's like, yep, no problem. Oh, I got this. I love that. What is hard right now in your sobriety, Jen? Ooh, that's a great question on that. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that one. Right now, I am working as a recovery coach through um, a mental health organization. And so it's still, it's tying in with my own personal recovery because what I think is best for recovery isn't best for everyone. So I'm learning all these different modalities and listening to everybody's stories and really empathizing with them. And for me, it's kind of like, here I am, and this is what my recovery looks like. And it's just expanding at an ex- an accelerated rate because I'm growing so quickly. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm learning so many different things and tools. And what is the hardest? It's, you know, it kind of feels like uh, maybe a big... It, how do I want to say it? I don't, I don't know, but I'd say that this rapid rate of growth is kind of unexpected in my recovery. And I don't know if that was a good answer because it's not, it's almost like, it's not really hard. That's, and I want to, I want to be truthful. No, and I, you don't yeah. have to worry about the perfect answer. You know, I feel like that, <laughs> that rapid growth that you're sharing, Paul says it all the time. You know, we, uh, we're trying to like, do we open up another group in Cafe RE? Do we do more events? Do we do more? Like I get excited because of you. I feel like I, I'm very like goal oriented and like, what do I want to achieve? How do I get there? And then through people like him and other people on the team, I've learned like, hey, maybe like careful with that rapid Ooh. growth because that, yes. that means a lot of things when that's happening. Yes. And you know what? I think I think where I was trying to take this was this rapid expansion of my recovery. Is my foundation strong enough? Can I be uh, an example for many people and still take care of myself? And so I'm just trying to balance and make sure that I'm fully ready to, to do the work. And so I guess that's what the hardest thing is right now for me is to be like, I have to, I am the center. I am the rock. And in my recovery is in the center of that. So I have to be able to take care of myself, take care of my recovery, but I'm also going through this massive amount of growth in my recovery right now, which is super exciting. And I'm very happy about it, but also yeah, and, and I have to, to like your, mind myself. Totally. And to your point, you know, I feel like we all experience that imposter ish of like, am I ready to be someone right. else's shoulder to lean on or even advice? Like I said, I think for me, what has really helped is continuing to share my journey and sharing mm-hmm. how I've not arrived. And I need that coming from someone who's on this show. And then yeah. knowing that like Paul passed the baton on, there was already a ton of people listening. And I was like, listen, I, at some point, it, it, there's like a fine line between uh, being someone as hopefully a leader, a guide, someone to lean on. But also I don't want to be put on a pedestal because I can right. still fall. Like I relapse- need to stay humble. Yes. And <laughs> relapse, relapse is like as close 
to me as to anybody else who's listening on the on the show, you know, so it's like just that consistent reminder to myself and to other people of like we're like linking arms. I'm not like over here on the podium trying to address this is how you do it. You know, I feel like that's where I've been so mindful and so vigilant. Mm -hmm. And I think I mean, just from what I see from my side over to you, I think you do a really good job at sharing where you're at and Mm -hmm. how you're processing things. So also don't underestimate yourself because you can also help a lot of people. So it's this fine balance and don't, don't stop yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for the encouraging words. (laughs) No, you're welcome, Jen. And we have reached the rapid fire round. So we're going to move over to our final questions in less than 30 seconds. Can you answer the following? Do you think you're ready? Oh my gosh. I'll try. (laughs) All right. Here is, I got some easy ones. Number one, we'll start with the easiest. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Ice cream. Oh my gosh. Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. Ben and Jerry's for the win. Oh yeah. (laughs) What is an unexpected perk of sobriety for you? Mm, Good sleep. I guess it's not so unexpected, but good sleep. What is something you would like to say to Jen on day one or just younger Jen? Oh, you're going to be able to do this and you're going to be kicking butt when you're doing it. What podcast have you listened to lately that you like? Uh, you know, what? I really love Smart Smart Recovery. It's one of my favorite recovery resources and I listen to a lot of their podcasts. I'm going to have to check it out because I haven't heard them. There's so many now. Yeah, that one's a good one. It's kind of like, a, it's a secular version. There's no 12 steps, but they have their own program. They host their own meetings. And it's something that really helped me in the beginning of sobriety. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? You know yourself and listen to that voice that's telling you that you, you what you need to do because you know yourself best mm-hmm. and I used to listen to this podcast for years and I'd be like, what's the magic formula? Why won't someone just tell me? And it's like, it's inside you. You are the key. That is you. Listen to yourself. I love that, Jen. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. Oh my gosh. You might have to say adios to booze if you know your hangover by heart. And when you're going to start feeling better and what to eat to make yourself get there. And then you end up drinking at five o'clock, even though you said you weren't going to drink. It's just a continual cycle. Oh, Jen. Well, I'm so happy you're out of that cycle and so glad that you shared your journey with us. I'm just, I'm just really happy that you, you got to share your story and we'll drop your handle on the show notes in case people want to follow along, but thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much, Odette. Oh, thank you. Good evening. Have a good night. Talk soon, friend. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Very well, Team RE. That wraps our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you of something cool that we have going on over on social media, on our Instagram account. We are doing a Sober Holidays giveaway, and we are giving out one free month at our online community, Cafe RE, to whoever wins this giveaway. To participate, head over to Recovery Elevator on Instagram. Our handle is just at Recovery Elevator. And to enter, all you have to do is follow us, tag a friend who motivates you, 
and share a photo of yourself drinking a non-alcoholic drink during the holidays using the hashtag RESOBERHOLIDAYS. We will choose a winner on January 1st of 2022, and the winner will claim January as a free month into our online community, Cafe RE. What a great way to start your year, and what a great way to deepen your accountability. Anyway, if you have any more questions or comments, just head over, like I said, to our Instagram page. KMAC and I manage that page and we love interacting with all of our listeners and members on there. So just hit us up, send us a message. We can't wait to see you there. We can't wait to see your pictures. And remember to protect your energy this holiday season. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. thinking.